This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Wednesday, November 27th, 2019. I'm Caleb Brown. How hard is it to do business in America's largest cities? The new Doing Business North America project aims to collect data on more than 100 American cities to help figure out what makes good city policy. Stephen Slavinsky runs the project at the Center for the Study of Economic Liberty at Arizona State. We spoke last month in Colorado Springs. Years ago, the World Bank put out the uh, doing business index for countries around the world. Uh, and I don't know if they're still doing it or not, uh, yeah. but uh, good. And uh, one of the things that, that jumped out at me was like these weird statistics that they tracked on like, how hard is it to close a business? How hard is it to open a business? That one makes more sense. Uh, and uh, in a lot of countries, you have these like zombie companies that aren't allowed to go out of business. They have these yeah. massive assets that are just declining in value every day. They can't can't get rid of them. Um, you've taken uh, that idea and done it in the United States. So what is what does the project look like generally, and what kind of useful information or uh, actionable information are people going to get out of it? Sure. The Doing Business North America project is a project that we're doing at Arizona State University at our Center for the Study of Economic Liberty. And it was basically inspired by that World Bank study. They've been doing it for about a dozen years. They take what they see as the biggest business city in every country across the globe, and then they rank them and score them based on how easy it is to start a business, as you said, or, or to close down a business. And actually, it was meant to track the life cycle of a business in these specific cities. There was a couple problems with it. One is that they, when you look at North America, they don't have a lot of good data for the countries, or rather the cities across North America. And we're, at this point, we're talking about Canada, the U.S., and Mexico. They only chose a couple of cities per country in each of those cases. In the case of the U.S., they chose New York and L.A. These are hardly representative cities for across the U.S., as anyone who lives anywhere else would, would be able to tell you. The second thing that was interesting about the World Bank study is, over time, it sort of lost its mooring, it, it sort of philosophically. Part of the rationale for it originally existing was to follow the Hernando de Soto type logic, that if you can't protect your own property, if you can't start a business, you're not going to have a whole lot of growth in your, in your country. Well, over time, they started measuring a few things that made a few of the member countries of the World Bank look bad. So they started dropping certain things. And we realized, well, we've got an interesting arbitrage niche here. We could basically, first of all, fill in the gap. World Bank hasn't done a lot of work on individual smaller cities. And by smaller, I mean, oh, I don't know, San Francisco, for instance, or most of the cities in Texas or Florida, as cities that should be in any sort of ranking for the U.S. But then we also looked at Canada and Mexico as well and filled in the gaps with those cities, about 115 total for our first edition that came out this year. And the second part was we realized there's a lot of really important uh, aspects about starting a business and running a business in the U.S. that the World Bank may not be picking up. Or if they did at one point and dropped it, we wanted to pick those things back up. And so we had six categories we looked at across the board, all the way from starting a business, uh, to paying taxes, uh, to employing workers. Those are labor market regulations on employers, uh, getting electricity, uh, and resolving insolvency. As you said, closing down a business, but also registering and protecting your property. These things are going to vary by city, and they're also going to vary by country as well. But the, uh, the granular aspect of this, I think, was what was most exciting 
a lot of these rankings look that you see economic freedom of state rankings, for instance, look at the state-level policy. A lot of cities, though, will do things that are above and beyond and more burdensome than what the state is doing at the state level. And so the city level, especially in things like labor regulations, such as minimum wage uh, laws or the ability of people to write their own employment contracts with their employees, those are often confounded by a lot of these uh, uh, regulations that go on at the city level specifically. That's the kind of thing we wanted to measure and rank and score on. All right. So what do we know? What are, what are some of the most striking uh, facts about that we've learned about cities from uh, this data? So one of the things that I, I found interesting and not too surprising is that a lot of the southern cities and more rural cities tended to have the better scores. So the top five for our 2019 Doing Business North America ranking are top city was Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. Uh, in the mix, we also had Arlington, Virginia, which was a bit of a surprise, I'll admit, but they are being graded on a curve and being compared to places like San Francisco, for instance. Can I can I put an argument in here for Arlington, Virginia? Sure, please do. Uh, everybody who really, really understands policy in America lives there. That's actually a really good point. And in fact, <laughs> bear in mind, we are looking at cities within states. And so some cities actually benefited greatly from just being in a really good state in terms of law and, 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 and public policy. Um, but other places like Sioux Falls, South Dakota, uh, Boise, Idaho, these are places that you'd often see on these economic freedom rankings because they have lower costs of living, but they also have lower burdens of taxes, lower burdens of regulation. But Atlanta, Georgia also did pretty well. And so did Charlotte, North Carolina. But Dragging down the bottom of the list for the U.S. in particular were California cities, uh, San Francisco, San Diego, L.A., New York was bottom five, or I'm sorry, New York was bottom 10, Washington, D.C. was bottom five. And so not too many surprises in that sense. I think a bigger question that we we think we're going to be able to see more about, uh, more more discussion, more analysis about is what can we glean from this data? One thing that's nice about this project is that we're actually making this data publicly available. We have a website specifically designed for people to download the report as well as all of the base data. That means any researcher, any policy analyst, any scholar, any academic, any city policy maker, frankly, or, or state policy maker can download the data and figure out why what are we doing well? What are we doing poorly uh, based on these metrics? But something else we can start teasing out is what makes good city policy? What sorts of outcomes are we going to see? Are we going to see higher entrepreneurship rates, higher income mobility, more business starts? Is that the kind of thing we're going to see correlate? Uh, We're seeing some preliminary data that I'm working on now indicates that these positive correlations do tend to, to manifest themselves, but there are some weird outliers. They're not so weird necessarily, but they are outliers. Think about the fact that New York City and San Francisco store very low. And yet people often trip over themselves to start businesses there and work there. Why is that the case? I think there's probably something to be said about the fact that big government and big regulation are a luxury good in a sense. Some cities can pull it off because they're at a certain scale where it's sort of negligible in terms of the cost, in terms of the average percentage of what they're bringing in. Doesn't mean there isn't a limit, right? We're starting to see out migration from places like New York and San Francisco. But what that does mean is that if you're a city like Birmingham, Alabama, you can't try to replicate what San Francisco is trying to do because you just don't have the same kind of attributes. And so what we want people to, to notice and take away from this city ranking is that none of this is monocausal, but it does have a big impact on the cost of doing business, the cost of living in your city. And some cities can pull it off better than others. So on San Francisco and New York, I mean, you you might think that shopping externalities or economies of agglomeration within particular industries might overwhelm whatever negative 
impact uh, city-level regulation has. Certainly possible. And in fact, the stuff really isn't monocausal either. But I do think it's important to realize that a lot of these agglomeration benefits that come from, say, having these deep, vast wells of human capital accumulation, all those things generally occurred historically before a lot of these regs kicked in. So in some respect, uh, you might even think about a, a, a kind of a counterfactual of it, how much better these cities would be if we didn't have these regs as well. And again, there's still a limit to how much they can do. You, you are starting to see people react uh, to these uh, to these poor policies over time. So I uh, think about um, where people live. There is a, a huge number of young people. Uh, maybe they have kids. Maybe they don't yet have kids and are, are thinking about that. And they are not tethered to uh, a geographic location for their work. And there have to be a lot of these people. I don't know what the the exact numbers are, but the digital nomads, I guess, in a, in a way, they're looking for a place to live. They're trying to find themselves a city to live in. So uh, what might this data provide for them? There is kind of a growing disconnect between where people live and where they work. Sometimes you've got people who are telecommuting in that way. So in some respects, uh, the kinds of business activity we're looking to gauge with this study, uh, typically small and medium-sized businesses, you know, 50 employees and under, but some of them are service retail and service industries like retail, for instance, that kind of thing, uh, mom and pop shops, things of that sort. If you're a Google or an Amazon, you can kind of buy your way out of some of these burdens. So in some respects, uh, some of these businesses are, are sort of old old businesses. There are sort of old types of businesses and not really new digital types of businesses. What we want to do going forward, and we're going to be doing this study every year and adding new variables, is looking at things that actually impact people who might have, say, home businesses or be working in a telecommuting kind of fashion. Sort of space use regulations is a good example, where some cities will require a certain percentage of square feet uh, in uh, in a home if in order to declare as, as, as a home office, or you have to do certain things to modify your property. Uh, these are all onerous uh, burdens on just working from home. And so the ability of people to make choices as not just where to work, but also where to live, even if those choices are two different cities, uh, having regulations that impede that that overall market process, that sorting and that migration process, uh, those are the kinds of things we want to start measuring going forward. Is there any indication at this point in the process, and I know you've just just launched uh, this, this data out to the public, that um, cities are cognizant of where they rank in a lot on a lot of these individual metrics of course the big ranking is the one they might care about because the local paper will might publish where they fall but uh are aware of the cognitive or aware of things that, that that are the low-hanging fruit to make changes to deliver big dividends for potential businesses and the businesses that already exist there I think so. One of the nice parts about breaking it up into six different categories and having discrete ranks and scores for those categories means that cities can see where they've done best. And some of the top scoring cities actually might have scored very poorly in these other categories in, in the aggregate. You add up their scores, they look really good, but individual categories, they can have some improvement. So I do think they're going to be conscious about that over time. Obviously, the higher ranked cities are going to be tweeting about their high rankings, and many of them already have, uh, just as I expect the people at the bottom of the list to maybe even use that as a badge of honor and say, hey, we're San Francisco. We think we're great, even if you don't think we're great, Arizona State University, something like that. But I think over time, you're going to see the sorting process where people begin to realize there are certain advantages that some places have and that they need to, as a city and, and as, a, as, a, as a workforce and, and as a business community, decide which of the things they do best. Hopefully, our, our study can help them discover that. 
Steven Slavinsky directs the Doing Business North America project. We spoke last month in Colorado Springs. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast wherever you please and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.